welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. My co-host, Joe Weisenthal, is away this week. So the entire world has been watching the outbreak of a deadly new coronavirus. And I have to say, I'm recording this podcast from my apartment in Hong Kong. And a lot of workers in the city have now been asked to work from home. And as I'm recording, there's this huge thunderstorm outside. So apologies if you hear it in the background. But I got to say, the entire atmosphere of Hong Kong at the moment feels kind of apocalyptic. Uh, this morning, China just reported an extra 15,000 coronavirus cases after changing its methodology for diagnosis. And that takes the total cases to more than 50,000 in Hubei province alone, the epicenter of the outbreak. Deaths are now well over 1,000 people. That's according to official numbers. And of course, there's a lot of doubt surrounding those official numbers. And in between sort of obsessively checking my temperature all week and trying to find masks in Hong Kong, most of them are sold out. There's another thing that I've been obsessing over, and that is the World Bank's catastrophe bonds. Now, these aren't just any catastrophe bonds. Uh, cat bonds are typically linked to things like hurricanes and earthquakes and other natural disasters. But the ones we're going to be talking about today are a $320 million cap bond issued back in 2017 that's linked to pandemics. In fact, it's the first pandemic bond ever. And it was sold in response to the Ebola outbreak uh, from a few years ago. And the bond basically backs the World Bank's pandemic emergency financing facility, the thing that is used to fund fighting these kinds of global outbreaks. Now, the idea behind the bonds is that they're a way for investors to bear some of the financial risk of a global pandemic. If an outbreak gets bad enough, then the bonds get triggered and their principal value gets paid into the World Bank's account to help fund containment efforts against whatever disease is currently wreaking havoc. In the meantime, investors get to earn interest. And I got to say, it's pretty good interest. The riskiest tranche pays about 11%, I think, over LIBOR. And the least risky tranche pays something like 7% over LIBOR. Now, I just mentioned riskiest tranche and the least risky tranche. And as you can imagine, there are different payout triggers for different parts of the bond. Uh, and they come into action at different points in time. And defining a pandemic isn't something that normally comes up a lot in finance. I think it's worth digging into these bonds to see exactly what those triggers look like, what the structure look like, looks like, how people in finance think about global pandemics, and also what we can learn about pandemic containment efforts in general. And so today we're going to talk with one of the critics of the bonds, uh, but also someone who has a lot of experience from an economics perspective with pandemics. Our guest is Olga Jonas of the Harvard Global Health Institute and also a former economist at the World Bank. Olga, thanks so much for coming on. Um, thank you very much. Very glad to be here. So I, I guess my first question is, uh, how did you get interested in this particular uh, bond issue? Because I've seen you on Twitter and you tweet quite a lot about it. And of course, there aren't that many people out there on social media who are talking about pandemic bonds? Yeah, well, I mean, the origin was that I was working, I'm a macroeconomist, but in 2005, I was um, in a central policy department at the World Bank, and it was at that time that the international 
response to avian influenza and the pandemic threat from avian influenza was launched and you know just was a fortuitous coincidence that I was in the department where this this response was managed for the World Bank so I got very interested in uh, pandemics and pandemic risk because it's really very much uh, underappreciated and it's not studied very seriously because you know between episodes of emergency people forget about this risk and and it's not um, something that they worry about, which you know is a mistake. And as we went through the response to avian and pandemic influenza from 2005 to 2010, you know it became clear that the world is not ready for a pandemic. That there are just you know the capacities to prepare and and to prevent uh, such a catastrophic event, you know are feasible, but they are just not there in the poorest countries. So we became very interested in sustaining the momentum from the avian flu response into, you know, building the capacities to prevent and to be better prepared for the next episode, which will necessarily come, as they say, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. Um, But unfortunately, this was sidelined and, you know, it just didn't occur. And that was a very disappointing um, experience, very frustrating. And then, you know, the Ebola outbreak in 2014 was a reminder that poor countries, this was in West Africa, where we saw that, you know, it devastated the economies and then too many people died in uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea. Uh, And afterwards, there was, you know, momentum to um, sort of renew the efforts toward being prepared Next time, and instead of focusing on the capacities in the countries, the World Bank went this other route. But unfortunately, it's you know it, it was not a priority. The priority is definitely in the countries to be better prepared. And this was a very much a response. Well, you know, what if there is a pandemic? I mean, how do we get more money? Kind of response. But not only is that not a lower priority, but it also was shown to be not feasible to design it in a way that it would work. So it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a sort of an accumulation of, of sort of errors of judgment and analysis that um, brought us to where we are today. So Olga, just to back up for one second. So you were talking about, you know, the, the preferred way of dealing with a pandemic would be to have a domestic healthcare system that is capable of responding on its own, but there was a preference for figuring out some way to get additional money funneled into a particular country or against a particular series of countries uh, if they're hit by the pandemic. So how exactly are these bonds supposed to work? How does the money get to the World Bank? Well, it's, it's supposed to work the way a cat bond works, which, you know, there are parametric triggers, but it proves to be very challenging to define the triggers because it's very difficult to anticipate how an epidemic, you know, when it starts, it's an outbreak and then it becomes an epidemic. And the idea is that you have to intervene as soon as possible at the beginning to prevent the further spread. Right, but but that's very difficult to anticipate what it will look like, and that's why in designing it they chose triggers that are 
much later. There is, in fact, a condition that it has to be at least 12 weeks after the beginning of the outbreak before anything can be triggered, as well as the number of deaths, you know, the high number of deaths and the growing rate of the outbreak. So that means that it's triggered much too late. But if it was triggered earlier, then the price of the insurance would be much higher, right? Because um, there's just so much uncertainty in the modeling. And much of the uncertainty in the modeling is due to the lack of data on these kinds of events, and the lack of data is due to the lack of public health systems in developing countries, which is what is needed to invest in, not healthcare systems. You know, it's not all of healthcare, it's not hospitals and clinics and all that. It's just the basic, it's called core public health functions, which is the capacity to detect, to diagnose, and to respond to an outbreak. And that's not, you know, very expensive. It's, in fact, highly affordable compared to the benefits. And that hasn't been done. That's, that's what has been sidelined. And you need that to do, to do modeling that would actually enable insurance maybe in 30 years from now when the health systems are in place to generate the data that you need to do the modeling. So there seems to be a tension here because obviously... If you're fighting a pandemic, you want this extra money as soon as possible, but the terms of the bonds make it difficult for them to pay out because, A, you have this sort of 12-week limit that you just mentioned, and you also have to have deaths that take place in in other countries outside of, of the original outbreak country. You mentioned that data is quite hard to get um, when there is a global pandemic. So who is who's the arbiter? of when these bonds actually pay out? How do they verify that the trigger has actually been met? Well, there is an actual verification of the triggers is uh, spelled out in the prospectus of the for the bonds, which is 386 pages long. And there is a verification agent, which is uh, you know a, a firm. It's a commercial contract between the World Bank and, and the and the verification agent, and they are going to ascertain whether all the triggers have been met. But the triggers are triggers have been described as a maze of confusion. So you know this is not a trivial exercise to verify these triggers because it's it's really quite complex. I mean, it takes 386 pages to set out the terms of the bonds. So when the verification agent notifies the World Bank that you know the triggers have been met, then the World Bank would uh, get the money from the bond bonds because it's holding, I mean, it's holding that money, right? Right. What's the maximum payout that the World Bank could get? Well, that's, that's the other issue that's very disappointing in, in this whole experience is that for coronavirus, um, when you um, look at it, the first payout, the if it happens, right? I mean, there's no certainty now. I mean, there's no way of telling, at least from where I sit, whether it will happen. It will be $131 million, and the maximum payout is $196 million. And that will have to be divided among the 76 poorest countries. 
It's about eight cents per capita because there are one point more than one point six billion people in the poorest countries that are eligible to you know get the proceeds. So it's eight cents per capita, which you know, and when you compare it to what China is already spending on its response, right, which uh, we have all seen on. Um, the dramatic um, images of hospitals being built in one week and, and um, whole cities under quarantine. And they have announced that they have already allocated $10 billion for their response. So you can see that, you know, if the poorest countries in the world with more a bigger population than China to, you know, together, they will get only um, you know a fraction of what China is already spending, so it will not make much difference. It will be too little, too late. Do you think the bonds will trigger for the coronavirus outbreak? I've, I I hope they do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I I really hope they do because the tragic one of the sort of tragic aspects of this is that in fact the payment for the cost of the bonds, that means the premiums and the interest. And the fees that were, you know, associated with, with the, this pretty complicated transaction, that those add up to 115 million dollars, and those funds actually came from funds that were intended for the poorest countries. They came from IDA, which is the soft loan window of the World Bank, which is, you know, money that donors give for the World Bank to finance productive projects in the poorest countries. So that was 50 million from AIDA. Then 50 million was donated by Japan. But I'm sure, you know, the Japanese government intended that their donation of 50 million benefits the developing countries, benefits, you know, the poorest countries, protect them from pandemics. And, and then 15 million was donated by Germany. So also, you know, taxpayers, taxpayers in Germany, taxpayers in Japan. So altogether, 115 million has been paid uh, for premiums and interest, I mean, for the interest and for the premiums and for the fees to beneficiaries or, you know, to recipients who are not poor, who are in high-income countries. I mean, these are investors who, of course, they, you know, invested their funds and they are you know, at risk of losing some of this money because of the triggers. But, you know, that's a very high um, return. As you mentioned, it's 11% over LIBOR or 7% over LIBOR for the other tranche. Um, those are very generous returns in uh, today's market conditions. And, um, you know, then I think you mentioned when in your introduction that the idea was that the investors or the private market would share some of the risks of a pandemic and, you know, thereby, thereby contribute. You know, in fact, when a pandemic worsens more than it is already and when you anticipate that it will worsen, the markets will, you know, decline. I mean, prices of assets fall. So investors are already going to be losing a lot of money just because there is a pandemic, right?
So these were pitched as sort of something that should kind of be uncorrelated with the broader market. But in fact, whenever they trigger, if they actually trigger, it would probably be because something quite serious was happening and therefore markets around the world would be falling anyway. Exactly. So investors sort of get a double whammy. So for the investors, it's not that I don't see how there could be much of a diversification benefit because these bonds are going to move with the market and the prices, right? So who are the investors who who bought these? Who's a typical buyer of this kind of bond? Well, I think I I, I don't actually know. Um, I think, you know, there were just investors who buy cat bonds who, you know, want to see them in their portfolios to, as an element. Um, I think there are some pension funds who bought it, but um, it's definitely the high returns have not been earned by developing countries. You know, I'm quite certain it's all high-income investors. Do you think there's any way to structure this kind of bond in a way that would be satisfying or attractive for investors, but also ultimately fulfill the purpose of a pandemic bond for public health, which presumably is getting extra money to the World Bank as soon as possible? No. Well, number one, the World Bank does not need extra money to respond to pandemics. You know, the World Bank is not a budget-constrained entity. It's a bank. And IDA, the, the fund for the poorest countries, is the largest multilateral fund, you know, public fund to support development in poor countries, which includes for the last 50 years responding to emergencies because emergencies, you know, occur um, as a matter of, I mean, often, right? And IDA has very, you know, ample liquid assets. It has reserves. It lends, it, you know, makes new loans worth now $27 billion every year, right? So, and the allocations are done on a three-year basis. So now it's allocating $82 billion for every three years. It's a rolling process, right? So there's, you know, you cannot, nobody can say that the World Bank needs more money in order to respond to outbreaks. The World Bank does have the money and that's his, that's the very purpose of the World Bank. I mean, that's why it was set up. It was set up to support countries in their, you know, for their priority needs as circumstances change. And if there is an outbreak of Ebola or of coronavirus, the money is not the issue. It's the preparedness of the World Bank to respond, to, you know, deliver the financing on the ground, and the preparedness of the country to you know, implement the activities that are necessary to control the outbreak. But money is not, has never been the issue. I mean, if you have $82 billion in the fund, you you do not issue uh, bonds at LIBOR plus 11% to uh, obtain um, $196 million in case there is a coronavirus, right? It's I mean, the World Bank has ample reserves to deal with out- outbreaks in either country. So this was more of a sort of attention-getting initiative to, you know, to have an innovation, to try to uh, innovate in this space. But 
it was not needed and it did not work. So I want to broaden out the conversation a little bit and, and go back to some of your experience as an economist dealing with other epidemics uh, such as avian flu uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, what what lessons did you learn as an economist dealing with those sorts of epidemics? Because I, I must admit, I, I don't really know exactly what the role is of an economist at the World Bank in dealing with those kind of outbreaks. What did you actually do and what did you learn? Well, you know, what's astonishing is that how underappreciated the economics of epidemics were or still are, because there's very little realization that if you act early and if you are prepared to stop the outbreak when it's just a few cases, you know, before it spreads, then in fact you are avoiding a huge cost later and the huge cost is due to the exponential threat, you know, the exponential growth that can happen with these diseases because like two people give it to four people to, you know, 16 people, etc. You know, it's a very rapid uh, progression of, of growth. And that's not understood by the by the sort of bureaucratic processes that we have in place to respond to disasters, you know, because usually it's a disaster that occurs and then there is an estimate of the costs of rebuilding, like in a you know, hurricane or, or in an earthquake, and then there are activities to rebuild. But in this case, you are averting something that hasn't happened yet. Sort of, there's an overreaction in reacting, but at the same time, there's a lack of appreciation of how much money you save by reacting early and being prepared. So that's why there's this repetition of, you know, uh, panic, and then it's forgotten because in the health sector there there are so many unmet needs that people's attention shifts somewhere else. There's always some other priority that's, uh, that comes up and catches attention. And then, um, you know, that accounts for the high costs of responding the next time. If the bank is not prepared, the countries are not prepared. It's very difficult. And we are seeing it again with coronavirus because basically um, from 2015, which was the end of, or end of the last epidemic that was a, sort of a major epidemic in West Africa, you know, not not much has happened to improve preparedness across the poorest countries. Mm. So you mentioned that after other disasters like a hurricane or an earthquake, there's sort of building activity that starts up immediately afterwards. And I, I would assume that that maybe helps stimulate the economy in one way or another. In, in your experience or in, in your research, after a pandemic, what sort of economic impact does that have in the long term? Does the recovery, the economic recovery after a pandemic look different to the economic recovery after an earthquake or a hurricane? I mean, sort of a high level answer is no, that it's a temp, you know, macroeconomically it's a temporary shock that passes as soon as, you know, the disruptions um, of travel and trade and, and, um, you know, supply chains, you know, when that comes to an end and things return to normal and there is a um, 
there's no permanent effect. However, in when this happens in poor, very poor countries like um, what happened in West Africa in 2014 to 16, the Ebola outbreak had a very severe effect on the healthcare system. A large number of doctors and nurses died. And when you think of that in the context of a poor country that does not have enough doctors and nurses and, you know, these kinds of, you know, human capacities that, that make uh, the healthcare system work, and when they lose them in a in a in a uh, uncontrolled outbreak, which is what the Ebola was in West Africa for you know the first year certainly, um, then that sets the country back because it takes you know many years to train new uh, and and it's expensive also you know to train new doctors and nurses. So there you would see a uh, you know development. I mean they estimate that the West in West Africa development was set back by a decade. So you know, losing a decade of growth in, in a very poor in very poor countries, that's very serious. You know, the coping with these events is much more difficult in poor countries and in poor communities. So there the effects, you know, would be longer lasting than in countries that are much more um, robust and resilient, you know, when the worst is over, you can return to normal, hopefully. <laughs> How do you see this playing out in China specifically? We look with astonishment at the uh, measures that are being implemented in China. And it's, uh, I'm no expert in China or in um, or, or these kinds of measures, and I can only hope that it works. <laughs> we should all hope that it works. Thank you so much, Olga. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for, for um, having me here. Thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. So Joe's away, so I'm just going to talk to myself uh, for a couple minutes. But I just wanted to say, I always find that kind of deep dive into bond documentation very fascinating. And I find this particular conversation fascinating, not just because coronavirus is impacting so many people around the world at the moment and also global markets, but also because these pandemic bonds remind me a little bit of ESG investing, which is the other hot topic in finance at the moment. Uh, investors buy stuff that's supposed to be environmentally friendly, or aimed at some sort of social good or governance related thing. And too often, we're not asking the right questions about how these things are necessarily structured, who's doing the due diligence on them, who's monitoring performance versus payout. A lot of people just seem to be reaching for the hot new thing that happens to come with a, you know, cuddly do good label. Uh, and the, the pandemic bonds remind me a lot of that. Uh, now, if you want to read more about these, my Bloomberg colleagues, John Lauerman and Tassos Vassos, also wrote a great piece about the pandemic bonds last year. Definitely worth reading. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. 
You can also follow my absentee co-host, Joe Weisenthal, at The Stalwart. And you can follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. You can also follow all of Bloomberg Podcasts at the Twitter handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.